Welcome to Charity Village Connects. I'm your host, Mary Barrel. That's the sound of a hummingbird pollinating our world and making it a better place. The hummingbird is Charity Village's logo because we strive, like the industrious hummingbird, to make connections across the nonprofit sector and help make positive change. Over this series of podcasts, we'll explore topics that are vital to the nonprofit sector in Canada. Topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion, mental health in the workplace, the gap in female representation in leadership, and many other subjects crucial to the sector. We'll offer insight that will help you make sense of your life as a nonprofit professional, make connections to help navigate challenges, and support your organization to deliver on its mission. In this episode, we focus on the devastating impact COVID shutdowns and restrictions had on fundraising, how nonprofits pivoted and embraced new digital tools to transform their fundraising models in record speed. We'll hear crucial advice from some of Canada's top experts to rebuild, diversify, and strengthen your fundraising strategies, and do some crystal ball gazing to see what key innovations are likely to remain as the sector emerges from the pandemic and into a new normal. Canada is a very philanthropic nation, and it has been throughout history. Fundraising has been a part of Canadian society prior to the inception of Confederation. From the publication, Excellence in Fundraising in Canada, Volume 2, we learn the first noteworthy nonprofit was founded in 1786. It was called the Charitable Irish Society of Halifax. It was a band of 88 members formed to aid Irish nationals who shall be reduced by sickness, old age, or shipwreck. A major step in the level of giving in Canadian history came when fur trader and entrepreneur James McGill gifted the province of Quebec with 10,000 pounds sterling and 46 acres of land for the purpose of creating what would become McGill University. As we fast forward to the 21st century, we find, as reported by Statistics Canada, in the year prior to the pandemic, Canadians gave $10.3 billion. But as Canada helps, national giving reports have shown in the years since, overall giving in Canada has been flatlining. This has not kept up with inflation or population growth, creating a looming potential shortfall in revenue. And then, COVID-19. The outbreak of mystery pneumonia cases in Wuhan began last month. It's a new type of coronavirus. South Korea is the first country outside of China to report a suspected case. There are now more new cases of coronavirus being reported outside China. An elderly man in British Columbia has died as a result of the disease. When the pandemic hit Canada in 2020, we saw that the continued lockdowns were having a devastating effect on the ability of nonprofits and charities to fundraise. Their traditional events like galas, runs, golf tournaments, all canceled. At the same time, demands on many nonprofits increased, creating a perfect storm for the sector. With normal fundraising sources drying up and escalating need for many services that nonprofits and charities delivered, along with the need to keep staff and volunteers safe. It was a full-blown existential crisis. You know, it was really interesting because it felt like such a dark time. You know, we were getting news of the pandemic. The epicenter of the outbreak in Canada was only a mile from my house where the initial entrant came in. And so it felt very direct, very personal, very in our face. That's Daryl Hatton, CEO of Fundraiser 
a crowdfunding platform based in Vancouver. And the feedback that we were getting from our customers was the confusion point. They didn't know how long this was going to last, how badly it would affect them. And then the lockdowns happened and they started to see the cancellations coming in, people not wanting to go to do a gala, not wanting to go do a golf tournament, being concerned for their safety and doing all that. And there was a a fair bit of angst showing up of how are we going to fund this and how are we going to adapt? Aside from live events, the nature of how to give also shifted dramatically. When Chi O'Connell, the executive director of the PayPal Giving Fund Canada, had a front row seat on the impacts. Think about where we were at the beginning of the pandemic. Charities had to really pivot to a digital first world virtually overnight, not just for their fundraising, but also for their operations, their marketing and service delivery. It became very, very evident the disparate impact that the pandemic had on marginalized communities as well and that increase in demand for the services that charities offer, which of course requires increased resources. So charities without digital fundraising infrastructure in place had to scramble, and depending on where they are on that spectrum of how advanced their digital fundraising was, this could have been you know, a minor challenge all the way to an absolute impossible task. Not only that, but charities were having to do all of this while caring for their staff, for their families, and for themselves. Charities across Canada say they're facing an unprecedented challenge with COVID-19, with cancelled food drives and fundraisers, and in some cases, a drop in donations and a shortage of volunteers. We've certainly never seen anything like this before, the way uh, support has just suddenly, suddenly stopped. Canada Helps is one of the pillars of Canada's nonprofit sector and has been facilitating charitable giving for more than two decades. At its helm, CEO Marina Glogovats saw the dramatic impact across the sector. We all know that a pandemic has been a major event in all of our lives and in all sectors, all industries, and in some more than, than in the other ones. And we know from various research and survey that has been conducted that the charitable sector has been hit fairly hard. Some charities and some categories have done well, like food banks and health organizations, but many, especially those that rely on earned revenue, such as arts organizations, theaters, and others, have really been affected. What really got hit hard, especially for charities that were reliant on events and ticketed events, and I've spoke to a few smaller charities that almost all of their funding was from that one big event or maybe two events, right? And they're now facing one, two, three, four opportunities missed, right? So ticketed events took a huge hit and I see it coming back. Some charities did virtual events. So definitely charities got really creative with what they had. I would have to say that those charities that were already set up on the events platform, on the peer-to-peer platform, with the online donation forms, and that actually had email lists that could be worked and added on, that they in general did better. I think charities that didn't even have the baseline in some of these things are ones that really suffer the most. Ruth McKenzie, the CEO of the Canadian Association of Gift Planners, saw the other side of a world transformed by a global pandemic. Canadians coming to terms with their mortality, with a large number of people writing their last wills and testaments. The more anecdotal evidence that we heard from our members that are doing estate plans is that people were 
updating and writing wills at really unprecedented levels. I mean, it was such a scary time, really, particularly in the early days. There's been some research out of the U.S. of disruption or crisis where people indicated that they were including gifts in their wills at at a higher rate as well. That's a time when people are perhaps thinking about their mortality, they're reflecting on their community, and in many cases, creating or updating their wills. I know I certainly did. Well, connecting with your donors at that time when that's on their mind, it's an opportunity really to demonstrate an alignment between personal values and personal giving and for your charity to be part of that conversation. Confusion, uncertainty, and fear. Nobody knew what to expect. The nonprofit sector relies on a robust economic engine to drive the flow of cash and assist thousands of charities needing continued support. But with that economic engine coming to a grinding halt and the door closing on in-person fundraising, what were charities to do? In the same way that many nonprofits pivoted and went to heroic lengths to continue their missions, they also responded to the fundraising challenges with creativity and purpose. Daryl witnessed it firsthand in the crowdfunding space. And I think there was a really interesting component of the charitable sector, which is sometimes moves fairly slowly to adapt to that. They were coming in, they were brainstorming, figuring out how to change, to adapt, to try new things. And so there was actually quite a period of creativity there for some organizations. Some retrenched and felt at risk, and some really rose to the challenge and created some great results. And that was very enheartening and inspiring for others in the sector. It was very interesting because one of the things that happened at that time was many groups were reluctant to fundraise. They felt that they weren't the priority for the pandemic. You know, society is going through this. Our little cause isn't uh, worthy. And so there was a lot of discussion of that to say, no, your cause is still worthy. Trust your donors to apply their lens on it. They'll decide what's important and they'll contribute to you or not in this time frame. So first off, we had to encourage people to go back and ask. And then the other thing that happened was they were trying to figure out this shift to digital donors. A lot of organizations were heavily, heavily reliant on in-person events for fundraising. And so the shift to digital donors was new to them, how to change the communication style, how to change the storytelling that's involved. There's quite a bit different ways to make online giving or digital giving effective. And they had to do a kind of a hurry up course on how to do all of that. So there was that component of it. And then there was just getting the systems in place. Many of them hadn't spent the time curating their email list, getting themselves a mechanism for communicating with their audience that was polished and easy to do. So there was a lot of struggles with new tools, new techniques, all at the same time. From Canada Help's perspective, Marina Glogovats saw the same surge of purpose and action as nonprofits stepped up to face the challenge. And so I think what charities faced first and foremost is a huge increase in demand for their services. We hear that big, big, big percentage of charities immediately dealt with more demand. And I think their priority was to protect that and to really focus on how to ensure the service delivery in this you know, rapidly changing, very much disruptive event. And so we 
really saw the charities did everything they could to survive the crisis. And I honestly think the charities are really good at that. Charities are really good with doing a lot with little, with surviving crisis, with being resilient. And so they really show that as well. What I heard from many charities is that many immediately focused on their biggest donors and started phoning them up, right? The phoning up donors to ensure that they can count on them during this time. And from what I understand, big majority of donors were really generous. And actually, Canadians have been really generous during this crisis. So that's just to ensure the the lack of disruption in service delivery. And then also what we saw in Canada Helps is that many, as in thousands of charities who did not have any digital capacity set up, reached out to us. Ruth McKenzie saw that same instinct to reconnect with donors. The CAGP encouraged the sector to look at the big picture and how their long-term sustainability might depend on their re-engagement with donors in new or deeper ways. It's a different context for us than for other kinds of fundraising that we might be more current or immediate. And where bequests or estate gifts are very much the focus on planned giving for many organizations, that the pandemic was really not the time to fundraise. Rather, it was, it was an opportunity to use some of the lingo for the day to double down on something that's fundamental to gift planning, and, and that's donor relations. It was an incredible opportunity for charities to just reach out to their donors, to check in in a genuine and authentic way and see how they are and to let them know how you're doing because they're your donors. They're thinking about you. And just to engage them in a conversation about your organization. And we saw a lot of organizations doing that in in our various webinars and education events that CAGP was offering around that time. That was a really strong message that we conveyed. Maybe just press pause on things, but use that time to connect with your donors. And, And interestingly, and there's evidence of this, incidents of planned giving actually increases during a time of crisis. With all the shutdowns and restrictions, the sector really had to transform itself, both in terms of operations, but also its fundraising strategies to embrace digital tools, virtual events, and social media-driven online campaigns. It was an astonishing transformation that occurred at breakneck speed. At PayPal Giving Fund Canada, the uptick was breathtaking. Here's Wen Chi O'Connell to explain. We definitely saw a big uptick in interest from charities in those free digital fundraising tools that our partners are offering, as well as an increased interest from donors looking to still support their favorite charities and causes or find new ones that were addressing the key issues of the moment. So a, a number of charities were enrolling with PayPal Giving Fund. This enrollment increased by about 89% in 2020, and more than 845,000 donors gave to PayPal Giving Fund Canada, which was an increase of 223%. From 2019. So there were definitely increases in interest in our tools in being able to give through our platforms. And we, you know, work with our partners to basically enable those giving opportunities and to make sure that the funds are, are going to the charities that the donors want to support. Marina says Canada Helps had to expand its staff to meet the staggering demand from the sector for digital tools. We were absolutely overwhelmed with demand ourselves. Like we had to hire in a hurry and ensure that we can even meet all the phone calls that came to us. And then there is a second layer of charities that knew right away that they have to 
become much better with digital in a short order. So they were more interested in how to optimize, how to add CRM, how to do better social campaigns. So I think charities, they reacted quickly. But what I also want to say that at a time where the digital overnight became critical, absolutely critical because everything in person just stopped and then it continued to be stopped for a while, that lots of gaps were shown right away. And with that urgency and digital transformation came some astonishing fundraising success stories that emerged when grit and determination was matched with creativity and innovation. Here's Daryl to share one inspirational crowdfunding campaign. One of the things that was really kind of interesting, especially in that first March-April time frame, was it felt almost like a wartime footing. We collaborated with some of our causes very intensely. And one of them was Vancouver Sun Children's Fund. They normally raise about a million dollars a year for school food programs where they're helping feed the kids that are going to school. And they were concerned because no one was going to school. So was their program even needed? But they had the epiphany that the children were still going to be hungry. They just weren't going to go to school. So they worked with their community and their principals and and others to help put together programs to help the kids who could come to the school staggered intervals and get fed so that there was no shame involved in it, so that they could be safe in the pandemic. And we went out and started a, a fundraising campaign based on this pandemic response. They raised over $850,000 for the pandemic response, and that inspired people to give to their regular program, and they raised over $1.4 million in the regular program. So they had a a 40% lift on the year on their regular program, and then an 85% lift on their COVID campaign, and it was all virtual. So I think that was one of the best examples I saw of, of a very significant increase. Canada Helps saw a spectrum of innovative digital campaigns emerging from across Canada. Here's Marina to explain. We've seen peer-to-peer fundraising shine during this time, and we've seen so many peer-to-peer fundraisers and walkathons, lots of walkathons, which was good, right? Because once we re-emerged from the bubbles, this was a good way to kind of get outside of your bubble and to do something. So I know lots of charities that did really interesting walks and walkathons and other interesting kind of peer-to-peer themes. We also saw that the charities also were optimizing their social media strategies and tactics. I remember the Outs is Saskatoon's AIDS walk raised almost $70,000 and I know that they actually provided incentives for fundraisers just to share for social sharing in order to hit their fundraising goals. What I also like, and I heard this from both the um, Women's College Hospital Foundation and Fred Victor, a lot of charities thought about how to create new content and content that may be interesting at this time. So I know that Fred Victor, for example, they launched their Fred's Walk 2020 that invited participants and donors to actually travel between each one of their locations, shelters, and to actually learn more about homelessness in Toronto. I love this one. There are some other charities that kind of join to fundraise together. For PayPal Giving Fund Canada, the pandemic coincided with the launch of a new digital service that brought online giving into potentially every online transaction at the checkout an innovation that boomed during the pandemic that saw a surge in online shopping. Here's Wen Chi with more. Our focus 
that PayPal Giving Fund Canada is on digital fundraising, of course, right? Online, mobile, and social, and to make giving part of everyday life. That means that we're looking to enable giving wherever people are spending their time online, whether that's on social media platforms or while shopping online. So one of the most timely innovations that help charities reach consumers while shopping online was just launched last year, which is Give It Checkout. It's a PayPal service that enables consumers using PayPal at checkout to add a $1 charitable micro donation to their purchase. So this is very similar to when you're at the grocery store checkout line and you're asked to donate a dollar or a toonie to the store's selected charity. In this case, however, the customer can actually have control over which charity is shown in checkout by setting their favorite charity in their PayPal account. So once they've set that favorite charity, that charity is going to be the one that surfaced every time they use PayPal to check out. They can add a $1 donation every time that they make a purchase online. Charities enrolled with PayPal Giving Fund Canada are able to take advantage of Give at Checkout, among other benefits like receiving electronic payments, accessing donor information, etc. And we've seen, of course, with the pandemic, a huge increase in the number of online transactions that people are doing. Payments Canada reported that close to half of Canadians are reportedly using e-commerce platforms to make online purchases more frequently than before the pandemic. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. So this option to add a micro donation to each of those ever-increasing number of e-commerce transactions is a huge opportunity for charitable giving. And Give It Checkout is helping to make that connection between the charities and online shoppers and at no cost to charities. Micro donations crowdfunding, peer-to-peer social media-driven virtual events and campaigns. It can be a confusing universe to the uninitiated nonprofit or charity. Just what are these new digital tools and platforms? How do they work? When do they work most effectively and with what donors? Here's Daryl to explain crowdfunding. And full disclosure to our listeners, Fundraiser is Charity Village's partner in our own crowdfunding platform launched in 2020. Crowdfunding is really about storytelling. Social fundraising is about engagement. It's not necessarily about just publishing a page and hoping people will get there, but it's about having a conversation with the community in digital. So the thing about our platform is that it makes it easy for, I call them normal mortals, to be able to tell a really nice looking fundraising story, you know, The editor there looks like a word processor. So it's really easy to put content in and to put videos in and photos and lay them all out, making it all look nice and do a very good job of telling the story. And then, of course, sharing it out in social media, being able to share it on Facebook, share it on on LinkedIn, share it on Pinterest. Something that's really become very important these days is what we call dark social or private social, being able to share it with Facebook Messenger or on WhatsApp or even send it by text message. So there's tools to do all of that. But one of the big things that we talk about in this kind of fundraising is donors have an expectation of more instant result. They're expecting to see the impact of their gift as quickly as possible. And so it's very important as part of the campaign pages to be able to keep that community updated on what's going on. And so we have a very strong update capability where someone can post a little bit of story content on their campaign page And it's automatically delivered out to people who have contributed or subscribed to that campaign. So what it does is it automatically curates your mailing list for you. Because one of the key things about crowdfunding is you may have multiple campaigns going on at one time. The nice thing about our platform is it's easy to talk to each of those communities 
automatically by just posting a story and then it talks to everybody for you. The other big game changer that digital fundraising supports is what's known as micro donations, smaller but more frequent giving. Instead of depending on the big check cut once a year, donors can be invited to give small amounts more frequently throughout the year. When she explains how it works with their new Give at Checkout service. For charities to better leverage this functionality of Give at Checkout, they can notify their supporters who use PayPal to ask them to set their charity as their favorite in their account, especially ahead of the holiday shopping season. Then anytime that supporter is checking out using PayPal, they're presented with that option to donate a dollar to that charity. These micro donations really add up. You know, in just the few months after we launched Give at Checkout in 2020, we saw over 400,000 donations come through, which of course translates to over $400,000 of additional unrestricted funds for Canadian charities. And in fact, PayPal found that donors who set a favorite charity in their account are actually four times more likely to actually make a donation in Give at Checkout. And again, charities are paying no fees for these Give at Checkout donations. So by giving donors a trustworthy, convenient, and easy way to make donations to charities and offering those giving opportunities on platforms that they use all the time, we're hoping to get more people to give to charity. And we expect that they'll do it over and over again. First off, one of the things we see in social fundraising is much smaller gifts. So you're not necessarily going to get a one time a year, someone cuts you a thousand dollars or a few thousand dollar check. There was interesting work done by the Gates Foundation on if you want to increase donations, ask for smaller gifts, just ask for them way more frequently. Because if we give $100 a month, for example, then in aggregate in the year, you're going to get $1,200 compared to the $1,000 gift that is a natural number at the end of the year. So millennial donors in particular are very interested in this kind of incremental work. And so if you can show them what their $100 will do, and so they give 100, show them what that 100 did, quick little story, you're not telling what their specific 100 did, but you're telling about that last group of people that contributed, what they accomplished. In the crowdfunding space, micro donations are part and parcel of what Daryl calls micro projects. If your organization trains guide dogs for the blind, your annual budget is going to be millions, potentially. Because each of these dogs is quite expensive, you know, fifteen to thirty-five thousand dollars, depending on the kind of training that they get for blind or for comfort dogs and things like that. But if you break up the budget and start talking about one of the dogs at a time, in my TED talk I call him Apollo. If you talk about Apollo and you show puppy pictures of Apollo, the vest doesn't fit, it's all paws and you know, all head and no body, and you start showing photos and tell the story of Apollo's training and what he's doing and his successes and his failures. It becomes a little bit like an episodic TV show where you've got you know weekly updates on how Apollo's doing. So if somebody starts to give towards Apollo, all sorts of things may happen. You know, he may have had a, an accident and broke his leg trying to do something. So he needs a vet bill. You can ask the community to support the vet bill for Apollo. If you do it well, you can get someone supporting Apollo and they'll enroll their friend to support Bravo, and somebody else will enroll somebody to support Charlie. And now your storytelling can be done by the trainers. They can just take a few photos and a quick video every once in a while, post it to the community, 
And this is where that auto segmentation part of the campaign storytelling really works. You can really significantly increase the funding that's available for that. But you go, okay, well, Apollo's all cool. As Daryl alluded to, the crucial ingredient of digital fundraising that truly breaks new ground is peer-to-peer social media-driven campaigns that make donors into ambassadors for your cause. Wen Chi shares a striking example of the power of social media. Right around when we were launching, we were doing some testing of a Facebook fundraiser. And a colleague of mine started a Facebook fundraiser just as a test. And he ended up having some friends donate to it. He was had to message them to say, oh, no, hang on, this is just a test. But it just really highlighted how powerful putting a fundraiser up and using your friend network really can be by sharing, you know, the Facebook fundraiser or the GoFundMe campaign or whatever that you have created to try to fundraise. People are using that as part of building their personal brand as well. And really like saying, hey, I publicly am supportive of this cause. It's really important to me. They can say why it's important to them or how the work that this organization has done has impacted them as well or impacted their friend or their family. So yeah, there definitely is a lot of opportunity there for people to leverage these platforms to be able to bring more money into this sector. By definition, crowdfunding is literally all about crowds. Leveraging the reach of the donor social networks of family, friends, co-workers, and social media connections. In social fundraising, we get them to share the fact that they've made an impact on the campaign. We're not asking them to brag about how much money they gave. We're asking them to say what they accomplished. So if $100 fed a, a woman and her child for a month and gave them personal protective equipment in the pandemic, they'll share that they helped a woman stay safe in the pandemic. And in their social network, their friends look at that and go, I can do that. And that's when they'll you'll attract a net new donor. So in the old school where we take a check and they'd mail it into us, that's wonderful. But it's almost a waste to take a contribution like that now. If we can't get the donor to talk to their friends and become an advocate for your cause to their community, they voted with their hard-earned dollars When they tell people about it, others are more likely to vote too. I try and encourage everyone to think of it that you're really building a community of advocates. The donations are a side effect. When people feel strongly about your mission and what you're accomplishing and feel like they're part of that mission, that they're going to help you get there, then they're more likely to talk about you. The pandemic did more than drive traditional fundraising online. It also transformed the work that the CAGP did in delivering its educational services to their members, fundraisers and professional advisors. Ruth explains their own transformation. It really presented some great opportunities for that. I would just say, too, that for us, education is really cornerstone. We tend to connect more so with fundraisers, or professional advisors who are connecting with donors, so we're a little downstream from donors. But our education has traditionally been really high touch in person and lots of interaction, and we got really creative in facilitating that through virtual platforms, like facilitating small group conversations and perhaps having shorter sessions over multiple days rather than a lengthy education session and maybe providing homework and group work in between. And the feedback for us is that it's been really tremendous. So there's lots of ways to learn and gain important professional development around fundraising as well. And so some of that, you know, I think were mechanisms that our clients, our members 
pulled into their own fundraising at the community level. Like PayPal Giving Fund, the CAGP had coincidentally started piloting an important new program during the pandemic. It's called Willpower, a public education campaign to inspire Canadians to think differently about charitable giving. A timely initiative as the pandemic compelled many people to think about their own estate planning. We're incredibly excited about this campaign. It's just in its second year. And in year one, we only piloted it in one community. But the pandemic really inspired us to accelerate our rollout of the campaign. So in year two, which is like right now, we rolled it out across the whole country. So our goal is to normalize Canadians leaving a gift to a charity in a will. Right now, about 5% of Canadians are leaving a gift to a charity in their will. But about 13% have said that they would consider doing so. Now, it it might be a bit premature to say we've had an impact, but our goal is to move that 5% to 8.5% over 10 years. And if we do that, and we think that we can do that because we are emulating a campaign that is about 15 years old in the UK, and those are the kinds of numbers that they saw when they were at a very similar position as we are in Canada right now. So moving it from 5% to 8.5% over 10 years would result in about an additional $40 billion in money to the sector. This is people who were not giving, and now they're giving through their will. And I think what is really compelling about our message, because we know that a big barrier for people to leaving a gift in their will is the feeling or the desire to ensure your loved ones are taken care of. And the key message in our campaign is to show people that they can do both, that they can support a cause they care about, but they can also take care of their family. And we provide tools that show how to do that and demonstrate that ability. And then we connect them with a financial advisor or an estate planner who can turn that into a reality. Thank you for giving. Balanced against this pandemic-driven, dramatic, and sector-wide shift to digital fundraising, reaching what would seem to be a tipping point to become permanent in our new normal, we are confronted with the inexorable power of human nature. As a society, we're hardwired for social contact. Once things begin to open up again, can we expect a return to in-person events and galas, abandoning all that had been learned and achieved during this difficult time? It became very clear that the sector is overly dependent on in-person events and on boomer donors. They didn't know how to cultivate this online community of younger donors. So when the pandemic happened and they couldn't reach the donors in the regular way, they really had some problems. And so many of them adjusted and we learned how to do virtual events, virtual runs and walks and rides. We've got some great examples of those and virtual galas. But one of the things I'm seeing now is that with the vaccines coming on and are opening up our society again, I'm seeing a snapback. It's almost like we're forgetting very quickly. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we move on to lot number eight. Turn up here behind me and we start the bidding. So what you're saying is that there's a downside to live events. Can you explain? Well, I can hardly wait to do our gala again. But wait, you remember that it's really expensive. It's not very fundraising efficient. You spend all this effort and you spend a whole bunch of money on food and entertainment and things like that that detract from your mission. Why are we doing that again? Because it's convenient and people enjoy the experience. 
And I think the people that are running it enjoy the experience as much as the people that are attending. So the snapback is worry because this pandemic is not over yet. It's a mutating beast and, and we'll see where it goes. But I think we should be planning for a continued presence of challenges in our physical world for a while. Marina agrees and thinks that the pandemic shone the light on some of the disadvantages of in-person events. The vulnerability of nonprofits' reliance on them, along with previously unrecognized benefits of going digital. We've talked to many charities, Mary, and I want to say that there are two things that I observe were happening. The first one, many charities actually looked at their ticketed events and looked at the ROI and understood what a thin margin those were. And I think a lot of charities really stepped back and said, how can we use this moment to really become better, to expand what we're doing, to maybe eliminate some of the things that were labor intensive and provided very little benefit and what they can be replaced with. And some other organizations like uh, Camp or Chiegas here in Toronto, they couldn't do their camps all of a sudden, right? So they created a whole bunch of online programs and they realized that with their online programs, they can now be national. They can offer programs to siblings, to other family members, and that they're no longer limited with the location. And I think that probably happened with some other charities. I also like the Saskatchewan SPCA who launched the pet food bank. They never had that, but they realized that because of the economic hit of the pandemic, they just added things. And that's what I'm talking about. It's not only the fundraising, it's the organizational innovation and using technology to go beyond the barriers of the physical and to really look at you know additional services and other things that are possible. As we gaze into the crystal ball and try to fathom what the future of fundraising may hold, it's impossible not to address the elephant in the room. The fact that fundraising strategies and nonprofits generally have been historically too dependent on boomers for their donor base. And even worse, they get low marks for attracting and engaging young donors, even while they see their donor base slowly disappearing. We asked our experts how the digital transformation may help reverse this trend and bring a new donor base among millennials and Gen Z to sustain the sector in the future. I think there is a massive upside for charities to develop their capacity and to really figure out how to tell the stories that appeal to these younger people. Because younger people, of course, they're not uniform and there is diversity, but we know that they really care about social causes. And I think charities have to become better at telling their own stories. I think that these innovations are here to stay, mainly because you know, the boomers are moving on and they won't be around forever. And so we'll have to deal with dealing with the younger audiences and the digital donors. If we can tell the stories of these causes and the impacts that they're creating, people will give repeatedly, like $10 a month, $20 a month, $50 a month. And they may not do it in a recurring basis. Millennials don't necessarily like to commit. Like, I'll give you $50, but I'll give you $50 again next month. But I want to keep my powder dry just in case a better opportunity comes up. That's the way they date. That's the way they everything, right? Especially Gen Z. They're not necessarily willing to commit to that. But if you give them a good reason, they still want to donate. It showed that charities needed to diversify where they're fundraising and what tools that they were using to fundraise might be. So if a charity was using traditional forms of fundraising in person, direct mail, 
they needed to pivot to digital fundraising, right? How do we reach those donors online, given that we can't do in-person events anymore? And maybe the younger generation isn't looking at direct mail. And so I think people will continue to opt for what works best for them. For charities to look at the variety of tools that are out there and available to them and determine how do I best diversify my portfolio. Ruth says online will writing software in combination with programs like Willpower may be crucial in educating young people interested in social causes to the benefits of planned giving early in life. These are strategies and tools for people who are younger and want to have a will, but they have a pretty basic estate, nothing too complex. They don't have lots of assets in different pots, and maybe they don't have a lot of kids, or maybe they don't have extended families and that sort of thing. So it can be a really great opportunity for young people to see the importance of having a will and for us to embed at an early age, when you're pulling your will together, think about the causes that you want to take care of and are are meaningful to you in your estate plan. We're also in dialogue with Imagine Canada, and they're really interested in a more current sense in speaking to millennial audiences. As we experience our second season of giving during a global pandemic, with one eye on the case numbers and the other on our fundraising goals, we asked our experts what advice they had for nonprofits and charities to survive these difficult times and to build a stronger, more diverse, and sustainable source of funds to thrive in this giving season and in 2022 and beyond. Our mission is really to integrate giving into everyday life. What the future that we're working toward is that one where every transaction or interaction that you're having online, there is some opportunity for you to give and trying to make that as easy and seamless as possible. We're hopeful that Give It Checkout will have a really big uptick in the holiday season. We can get as many charities as possible enrolled and telling their supporters to set them as their favorite and having those donors using PayPal and deciding to add that micro donation to each of their transactions would be amazing. Going forward into the new year, we're hopeful that more smaller charities will be able to take advantage of the tools that we're offering so that for them to be able to feel some comfort that there are some other revenue sources that they can tap into and supplement anything that they have going on right now, I think would be really wonderful. Longer term, If we saw giving in every place that we were online, that would say that we'd achieved our our vision, right? That's what we're hoping for. That's the million dollar question right now, for sure. The biggest thing is to, first off, even though we're in the middle of a crisis in many ways, to adopt a long-term thinking approach. We tend to band-aid things. And as a result, we're constantly having to band-aid it. But if we think about the long-term direction of how do we build a community of advocates that we can reach digitally and therefore cost-effectively to help sustain our mission, and now what can we do to do one piece of that right now? Typically, that means do a pilot, do a trial, do a small segment of your audience, start to work with them and see if you can grow that piece. Because we're having to train the organization, we're having to train the individuals, and we're having to train the donors about this is the way we're gonna communicate with everyone. And so if you set that path of long-term, of that goal of that engaged digital community, then 
the steps to get there start to become clearer. The first one is just start. Pick a project, start talking about it, and see if you can get people to share about it. This longer, more sustainable source of funding for charities is so aligned with what CAGP does because it's about planning now for very much in the future and connecting with your donors and building relationships with your donors, including gifts and wills, in thinking about your charitable giving in a more longitudinal sense. And that's why we tend to use language like gift planning, charitable gift planning at CAGP, as opposed to planned giving, because we want to make it almost analogous to wealth planning and estate planning, which is very much seen as a long-term, a visionary thing. So we're talking about philanthropic conversations now that pay off with philanthropic gifts later. And so investing in it now and having that long-term vision, I think is really, really important. It behooves us at CAGP to equip our members with the information and the data and the case so that they can go to the senior leaders, boards, and CEOs in their organizations and ensure that they see this long-term opportunity for gift planning and they can invest the resources in a gift planning program now that is long-term. And then the message to donors, again, I think is working with a financial advisor or an estate planner or your accountant and, and saying, hey, I'm really interested in being philanthropic. I know a lot of professional advisors are very much talking about the tax advantages of charitable giving, and that's very much part of the equation. We tell financial advisors and professional advisors, connect with your clients around their values around giving. It'll be an opportunity for you to get to know them, build a relationship with your client, and then support your client on their philanthropic journey over the course of their life. It's hard to know what's going to happen with the pandemic, but it's scary to know that this can even happen. And of course, it's scary to think that it can happen again because it happened once. So the message is very clear to me. It just reinforces the trends that have been happening for like at least two decades. There has to be an investment in digital. It has to be taken seriously. It has to be prioritized. And I know charities are often really focused on service delivery. They live head to mouth, day to day. This does require a little bit of a step back and figuring out how that investment will be made, getting the board on side. The status quo has to be disrupted. It's already disrupted, right? But now it's a matter of what are you going to do about it, right? Because you can probably survive in this way for another two, three, four years. You know, there are really generous people who will support you. But I think knowing that the digital era is here and the digital economy is here, it's really asking yourself, what is your plan? Where do you start? But most importantly, Mary, how are we going to fund this? That's why I've been going around and saying, how come the government is not putting money the same way they're putting into small, small, medium-sized businesses through digital mainstream? There are lots of corporations who want to help, but again, we, we lack a platform or a mechanism. I think that's going to be key because what we're also seeing now that everyone, every organization in every space is racing to become more digital. We've come a long way from the early days when fur trader James McGill made that donation to the province of Quebec. The digital models of fundraising appear to be here to stay, likely in tandem with traditional fundraising events, as we, as a society, continue to crave that in-person human connection so vital to our mental and emotional well-being. 
I want to thank our guests, Wen Shi O'Connell, Executive Director of PayPal Giving Fund Canada, Ruth McKenzie, CEO of the Canadian Association of Gift Planners, Daryl Hatton, CEO of Connection Point Fundraiser, and Marina Glogovats, CEO of Canada Helps. If you'd like to hear the entire conversation with our guests, please visit charityvillage.com. Charity Village is proud to be the Canadian source for nonprofit news, employment, crowdfunding, HR, e-learning, and so much more. Please take a moment to check out our website at charityvillage.com. In our next episode, we'll celebrate and feature the winners of our first annual Charity Village Awards and share their insights into the important trends that continue to shape the sector. Join us next time on Charity Village Connects.